Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for October 2016. I am writer, hyphen, author of Double Disillusion, Heartbreaking Chaos on the Campaign Trail, available now from Echo Publishing online and through all good bookstores and even some of the rubbish ones, Lee Zachariah. And with me, as always, is... Sophie Mayer, hyphen, Lee Zachariah, fangirl. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> so you're the one. I knew there must be one out there. Yeah, I'm just buying up all the copies. <laughs> and no, I'm going to make a... 400-hour documentary about the writing of that book, which is, like, how long it took you to write it, right? So yeah, congratulations on being podcasting as well. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if I sounded a little tired during the uh, May, June, July episodes, that's... Uh, Did you say wired why. or tired? Wired. wired. Well, I said tired, but I think wired works wired. as well. Yeah, no, and, in uh, order to be in your company, man. Oh. Oh, thank you. Well, we're going to be uh, also in the company of a very special guest who will be joining us for the next segment. But before we get to him... He's uh, locked the in the bathroom. We're going to have to axe him out. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of sounds like you want to say, ask him out. And you just... Play... <laughs> axe. I'm going <laughs> to axe, axe you out. out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's how the misunderstanding came about. But yeah, the films of this past month included the new film from Tim Burton, uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, about an American teenager discovering he's got powers, finds an orphanage that has other kids with powers. If it sounds like I'm a little underwhelmed, even trying to describe the plot of it, it's because I am, and I know I'm in the minority here, because I saw it with a bunch of film critics who all came out going, ah, Tim Burton's back, finally, he's made a film... Worthy of, well, I mean, they, they, you know, they weren't that excited, but they certainly felt like it was his best film in years, and I was just underwhelmed. A but lot. how low is the bar, right? Like, if you've seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, a mm. doodle on a napkin, you'd be like, Tim Burton's <laughs> back. True. No, the, the bar has been lowered, you're right. But even so, I mean, this is, this is quite toothless, isn't it? I mean, it's, just, it's quite a dull checklist, and it just feels like... I mean, we've had nearly two decades of X-Men films where everyone has some vaguely defined and seemingly unhelpful power that will turn out to be just the thing that's required to save the day in Act 3. And I don't know. It, the story beats are just so familiar, and I slept walk through this one a bit. I think it had, I was going to say two major problems, but then as I started thinking about it, they just proliferated. Mm. So one is that I saw the film yesterday and I can literally remember nothing about it today. So sure. it's, it's brought popcorn movie to a new high, low. Anyway, um, <laughs> Asa Butterfield is the worst actor in history. I don't even know <laughs> how, what that he was grown in, but... It, he is just a charisma vacuum and um, I think Burton is trying to get some juice out of casting him because of Hugo and other films and there's just nothing going on mm. there. Masses of fantastic adult actors who are, you know, have obviously been tempted with a kind of this will Harry Potter your career and are just mm. cruelly wasted. Um, a particular apologies from the Hellers for Hyphenates office to Samuel L. Jackson for being yet another black actor cast in the role of cheesy villain in a mainstream yeah. Hollywood film. You deserve better. We deserve better. For me, like, the, the biggest, the major flaw is, like, this obsession with the fact, the idea that gothic films are just design. You know, mm. yes, a lot of the film looks like Edward Gorey drawings. That's fantastic. Or, you know, sort of Aubrey Beardsley references or whatever's going on there. Rorschach ink plots, basically. Read into it what you want. But with no story, no performances, and just, as you say, really tired story beats, 
great make maybe he's just got too busy making exhibitions of his art to mm. actually bother to make that visual panache into something yeah so that's that's miss peregrine um speaking of uh speaking of uh, very familiar auteurs whose best days are long are considered to be long behind them oh. and also speaking of bar lowering yeah nice segue <laughs> thank you I just, thank oh, you before we act just to try and minimize that segment I think sure. there's something about an auteur whose first films you see when you're a teenager. Like, I saw Edward Scissorhands when I was 11, which I think mm. is the perfect meeting of, like, mind and matter, isn't it? There's mm. a bit of you that wants that auteur to stay who they were when you were a teenager. And then there's yeah. also a bit of you that wants them to, like, grow the fuck up. <laughs> and I think with Burton, it's time. Like, I think he needs to mature on, because for me, Edward Scissorhands is still his best film. I know other people will say mm. Batman, but beat that run of, like, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, and it's like he's still stuck in that school for peculiar children, and he should really be the teacher or the, like, the head by now. Yeah, I see what you mean. I, I, I can't imagine what the grown-up version of Burton looks like. Maybe Ed Wood? I don't know. Like, the film, not the the film yeah. um yeah that that does segue quite nicely into um, into cafe society and uh and i was thinking god this is the funniest woody allen film i've seen in a, in a long time but yeah speaking of lowered bars uh magic in the moonlight irrational man um not that irrational man was a comedy but but no cafe society you know it's got some laughs in it, it it's you know it follows a young man trying to make his fortune in 1930s hollywood with very little help from his studio mogul uncle who doesn't really want anything to do with him it's it's probably the best cast he's have it had in a long time or at least the savviest in terms of people who suit his material uh like jesse eisenberg and kristen stewart and steve carell all kind of look like they were born to deliver this kind of neurotic dialogue apparently steve carell replaced bruce willis i cannot imagine bruce willis in that role which is probably why he got recast halfway through shooting but the first half is definitely better than the second there's this ambling quality to the narrative that makes it feel like the story is finished at the 45 minute mark and we're now watching the further adventures of and that lets the air out of the tires a little bit so you kind of start looking at your watch a bit even after 45 minutes but look it's charming enough and it's got enough qualities to warrant a rewatch, and it looks fantastic vittorio storaro makes la look incredible it's so orange and, and beautiful and new york less so which also contributes to that second half lull when we move back to the east coast mm. but it is what it is it's 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 not going to be one of the ones that that i think gets remembered but yeah people have described it as mid-range alan and i think that's probably a, a fair description which brings us to uh my sure to be mangled pronunciation of the director of arrival denis villeneuve denis villeneuve i think <sighs> But I can't do a Quebecois accent, so we're on as good terms as each other, I think. Sure. I'm sure you're miles ahead of me on that. <laughs> but the director of Sicario, Enemy, Prisoners and many more has now done a science fiction film about a linguist who is tasked to translate the language of aliens who have come down and are attempting to communicate with us. Yeah, so this is an adaptation of one of the most um, highly decorated science fiction stories of all time, Story of Your Life, by Ted Chang. And I think it's a case of great source material actually making it to the screen. It's, you know, it's not respectful in a sense, but it really gets what is good about 
intellectual science fiction when it's good. This story has mm. a really strong characters, a strong forward motion in its plot, but it's not afraid to go intellectual. You know, there is a sexy discussion of the Sapir Wharf hypothesis. Which for those of you no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoiler it. You'll have to go and see it yourself. But it you know, it gets into kind of Chomsky versus Sapir Wharf, but it does so with linguists this I for me this is Amy Adams' best performance. I think, you know, it's kind of hashtag makeup free selfie. <laughs> she gets to play a huge emotional range as a woman who thinks that she is losing her mind but at the same time is just so good at her job she's incredibly competent she's on the ball she stands down not only the army but the cia in a particular like particularly sort of greasy performance from michael Storberg, just mm. conveying like the awfulness of bureaucrats really great and she keeps jeremy renner you know under control uh, as well who, who plays that astrophysicist who's her her counterpart uh, in having to meet these aliens which are known as heptapods for their very non-human sea creature like form which i think is really brilliantly realized you really mm. feel like the aliens are there without them ever becoming familiar or earth-like you know the film conveys both um and it's it is like a really old-fashioned sort of blockbuster science fiction roller coaster ride that br you know brings the emotion it brings the special effects it brings the philosophical conundra and really unusually it's a science fiction film that's on the side of peace i don't want to give away too much but mm. Villeneuve, especially for you know the maker of prisoners and sicario which are, are movies that like sweat testosterone he really <laughs> he breaks that down he's like come on there must be another another story here so mm. i was i went quite skeptical um, as a massive fan of the story, could Hollywood pull this off? And maybe it's just a meeting of, you know, a moment in which these kind of SFX are possible with a director who's got something to prove, I think, Villeneuve, um, mm. to build on on the success of Sicario. Great casting and also a moment when we're like waiting to see if America will have a president who will press the nuclear <laughs> stuff. So... Uh, oh, oh. aliens come and save us please it feels like a beacon going peaceful aliens come and save us this film does stand out you know it's so retrograde that that should be the case that we have to be like mm. wow it's a blockbuster science fiction film with a female lead obviously like building on gravity and prometheus this has become and something contact. that's and contact well yeah i mean contact one of my favorites but it's from the mythical 90s when women can do anything <laughs> Um, this film does pass the Bechdel test in quite an unusual and clever way, I think. Mm. And it's just a, you know, it's a film about a woman holding her own uh, in a group of men who don't believe she can do it and think she's crazy. But don't, yeah. see, it, don't see it for that. See it because there's a, you know, there's a lot, people are going to come out with a lot to talk about, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I really, really like this film, but I, I feel I, I've got I've got this personal thing with that sort of the grounded realistic science fiction film, and I suspect we'll be talking about this very soon in a in a different context. But um, 
science fiction films that are set in our recognisable world, and I think they have a harder trick to pull off than any other because it, they don't just owe a debt to their internal logic but to the external logic of our own world. So if the spectacle yeah. comes not from, look at this alien, it, it comes from, look at this alien that exists now in, in a world that worlds. is recognisably... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it takes that extra effort to make sure that every detail, every behaviour is entirely believable from bureaucracy to the tyranny of the mundane whatever. It, it requires this forcing against the instinct of dramatic tension in the hope that the extraordinary juxtapose the ordinary against the ordinary will do it, will do the job. And so anything that doesn't quite ring true, any little detail stands out to me more than I think is perhaps fair. So any, any plot turn that stretches credulity, that there's something that happens with the soldiers who take it upon themselves to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that, that, that jumped out at me. And so, and so those little mm. moments sort of, and look, the, uh, it might be an unre- unrealistically high standard that I want, you know, I, maybe my favorite genre is the realistic science fiction film. I don't know. But uh, as a result, I sort of like, come on, you know, just meet that, meet that impossibly high bar I've set for you. You know, I think my criticism comes down to, it's not a five-star film. It's like a four or four and a half, which is uh, still a massive recommendation. Mm-hmm. My criticism uh, of its realism begins at the very beginning, which is no linguistics professor has a house that sweet. <laughs> I do not yeah. know which school she is teaching at, but I want a job there because she has this like awesome mid-century modern house on the ocean and... That is not realistic. So I think it was signaled mm-hmm. to me from the beginning that this is going to be a little heightened, but mm-hmm. the plot point that you mention is sketched in really quickly. I think part of the point is it's not part of the problem is it's not signaled well enough mm. within the story. But you know, there's a lot going on. So as you say, it's like a half star knockoff. And mm. really, what people are, are going to remember coming out is the encounters between the humans and the aliens and the way that the film spends time with that and on the idea of communication and intelligence and compassion rather than violence and and maybe that's why that plot turn feels so unsignaled so out of nowhere Mm. yeah that's a good point yeah i do also have one other question about the film Mm that has been is really bugging me okay so amy adams comes up with a system which i think everyone knows about because it became a meme as soon as the trailer was released to teach the aliens language using whiteboards in a tribute to one of the greatest buffy episodes of all time (laughs) their language exchange progresses really quickly and if you're if you're watching you'll see that among the basic words that the aliens learn in like the first couple of sessions, man and woman. Now I know we presume that this is like so basic and we all understand it, but actually that's a really sophisticated concept, especially when the people that you're talking to are wearing massive spacesuits that allow no secondary sexual characteristics to be visible. So mm. where is the naked scene? Oh yeah. Given that, as far as we can tell, the aliens have no concept of gender, don't appear to Mm. be gendered, it must be like the Voyager gold plaque, right? Amy and Jeremy must have got naked and explained the difference. And And, and if we'd seen that, that would have put that half star back onto the film. Exactly. That bugged me for an hour. The moment where Amy Adams' character, who is called Dr. Louise Banks, had to say to Ian Donnelly, right, this is how we do linguistics, get them off. (laughs) 
Wow, I'm I'm a I'm a little I'm a little uh, shocked that that you're just calling for more TNA and and otherwise very serious intellectual films. I mean, I am um, with Amelia Clark on this. Free the P. <laughs> Amen. But that seems like a terrible note to end on about a film that <laughs> does hit. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. It hits like eight point five out of ten of the notes that you want it to. Yeah, which is pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> We are now joined by actor-author-songwriter-many-things-besides Reese Muldoon. Reese, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'd like to add Kubrick fan to that hyphen, if that's okay. You absolutely can, which, uh, which may give away uh, the answer to the next question, which is oh, which... Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late to change. Beautiful role. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go to the Coens. <laughs> so so I, I, I'll take a leap of faith and assume that uh, you want to chat about Kubrick. Yeah. So, Wait, are we not doing Dennis Kubrick, the famous <laughs> British documentary maker of the 1930s? Uh, that, that very, that's such a famous guy that I'm, I'll have to Google him right now. <laughs> Damn it! Um, I'm really prepared. <laughs> we've got to be more careful with our correspondence leading up to these things, I think. Um so, Reese, I find it very, very interesting when actors cite a favourite filmmaker because the, it's very easy to, to make an inference that the actor would have loved to work with that director in particular. Is that the case? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it would have been really hard work, but that's awesome because one of the one of the th- I mean, you everything I know about Kubrick or that I've sort of read or seen, like even just putting his films aside, like all the kind of makings of and any discussion about Kubrick and his perfectionism and the the difficulty in working with him, like particularly with um, shoots like Eyes Wide Shut and Full Jacket that just went on and on and on. And and Full Metal Jacket, where they're saying the minimum sort of takes would be 30. It would be really hard work. But, um, I mean, to be in a Kubrick film would just be one of the greatest dreams come true. I, I, I personally, I think there's kind of Kubrick and then the rest as far as directors go. Like I think he's in his total own category. You know, mm-hmm. he's um, kind of above and beyond. Did you ever record an audition tape for him? No, they're one of the funniest auditions known to humankind somewhere on the internet. Uh, this guy who does an audition for Kubrick and it's, so outrageously bad and hilarious. I've got, I wish I could remember the title of it, but um, maybe if you his, just... His name is up. Brian Atteen, and if That's you, him. you call Mr. Kubrick, which is yes. how you refer him, audition. <laughs> yeah. Although not if you're a fan of The Outsiders, because it will destroy your life. But <laughs> other, anyone else, this is today's treat. Oh, it is. It certainly is. It's it's one of the greatest. I mean, it's one of the reasons the internet was invented. I think this that actual video, like <laughs> it's it's just such a must watch. And and the kind of the sort of blasé sort of the arrogance of this guy is just such <laughs> gold. You just want to go in and slap him, you know? Like, oh, it's just too. It's too good. And funnily enough, I've actually got an anecdote that is kind of that that reminds me of. This was with I was with um, (laughs) he he dropped a big name, Kate Blanchett, after she was she just (laughs) 
Oh, yeah, I know. She, she'd just come on stage doing um, Streetcar Named Desire, right, mm. in um, in Sydney. And there was, like, me, Kate, Andrew, her husband, and, I don't know, one or two other people. And then this 14-year-old girl kind of – and we're all sort of standing around talking, whatever, you know. And this 14-year-old girl sort of broke into the circle and um, said, oh, excuse me, Kate. And Kate stopped and said, yes. And she goes, oh, you know, hi, I'm Karen, or whatever her name was, and says, um, yeah, I did um, – I did streetcar at um at my school um i played blanche and um i i thought i thought you did pretty well (laughs) (laughs) it was it was it was a it was a wow awesome god you're so 14 moment like she was just so confident you know she was you know thought yeah Outstanding. But it tells you a lot about Kubrick that someone who was famously hard on actors and and even to the extent of bullying some of them should still attract people to work with him because his his oeuvre is unique, what you get out of it at the end. Absolutely. I mean, you feel, I mean, like there's so many actors that you feel sorry for, like particularly Shelley Duvall. I Mm. go, oh my God. Like you you sort of see, yeah, you go, Shelley Duvall. Pre uh, The Shining, Shelley Duvall, post The Shining, you think some damage might have been done there. You know, like it, 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 it yeah. Well, yeah, what you say about Kubrick being, you know, the sort of him and there's everyone else is sort of how I've always felt about him. And I've been really struggling to find the right angle into his filmography when preparing for this. Like, do we recount all the canonized stories about his method and the meaning and the impact, or, or do we? talk about more personal interactions. I, I don't quite know how you penetrate uh, a filmography as, mm. I guess, profound and elusive as Kubrick's. Yep. Because, I mean, you've got, even in the silliest moments of Dr. Strangelove and A Clockwork Orange, there's still, I find, a profundity there. I know it's sort of, you know, there's this, there's this thing where it sounds like I'm treating him like a sacred cow. Mm. But... I kind of like the idea that we have at least one sacred cow in 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 filmmaking and cinema, and because there are very few, you know, mystical figures that have walked among us, and I kind of feel like he was that unknowable artistic entity, I guess. Yeah, but also I think the other thing to keep in mind is is how um, attacked he was throughout his career. I mean, the you know the unpopularity of uh, so many of his films at the time. Like, I think one of the things that sets Kubrick apart from other directors is 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 that his films a that you can watch them repeatedly, again and again and again, like a novel. You know, at different times of your life, you can mm. watch it again, and it totally stands up, and it has incredible depth, and there's so much detail in every film, and like I remember how much Eyes Wide Shut was despised when it came out. And still a lot of people really don't like that film. I mean, I, I love that film. But, mm. you know, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sort of, I, there's, not, there's no Kubrick film that I don't like. <laughs> and I think um, Eyes Wide Shut, we could just start with Eyes Wide Shut because, I mean, I think that that's a, a really fascinating film in that he's taken, because um, it, it was originally comes from um, a book, an Arthur, Arthur Schnitzler story called Traum Novel. Mm. which is um, dream novel, which also I love that, you know, trauma and trauma, you know, like that's their, their kind of... Yeah, until you pronounced it, I always read it uh, on the page as Traum Novelle, like it was a, like Traum Novelle, kind of like a city of trauma. But... <laughs> right, right, right. Well, but I think, and the, and the whole sort of the concept of that movie, which is really about, well, it's about marriage and, and relationships, all sorts of things, but it's really about a perception. And he's made this, this entire film, which is about a perception where Nicole Kidman's character says that, you know, she once saw a sailor that she thought 
just for a second she could run off with him and it's, mm. so it's just a, it's that and and then suddenly all this stuff comes tumbling out and there's jealousy and you know what does a marriage mean and you know and and Tom Cruise's character goes on this this journey of sort of sensual discovery kind of and um i think the choices of using um Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman really interesting because for mine Tom Cruise when he's good is when he's playing a character where there's something profoundly missing in his soul for mine mm. like um, a Jerry Maguire or an Eyes Wide Shut where there's something missing where he's very attractive on the outside but there's a hollowness or an emptiness on the inside color of money i would argue he mm. was good in that magnolia um, magnolia jerry maguire yeah exactly mm. jerry maguire and eyes wide shut and i and i think that there's a yeah there's a i don't know that something missing works well in this in this film you know and um and he's playing a doctor which funnily enough kubrick's father was a doctor hmm. and there's there's kubrick's last film where the lead character is a doctor you know i mean there's so much stuff about kubrick where you can just get lost down rabbit holes talking about particularly some of the films about the shining i'm not sure if you've seen like room 237 or yeah um yeah so you can, i mean you can just get into the conspiracy theories about kubrick that that's just a whole another show yeah even though like half, half the theories are, are absurd the fact that there's so much in his films that people can grasp onto and say i have this crazy theory but look i have enough evidence to support it says so much about how much he packed into them Oh, absolutely, and I think one of the particularly just moving on to The Shining. Just oh, well, mm. firstly, there's 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 what there's one uh, about Eyes Wide Shut, which is all about oh, you know, all the Illuminati symbolism and all this kind of stuff going on in um, Eyes Wide Shut, and that Eyes Wide Shut is a, a saying amongst the Illuminati and blah 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 blah, and you just go <laughs> yeah 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 whatever. <laughs> but um, with um, The Shining, man, it is so jam-packed with stuff and like you know one of the main stories is about um obviously the apollo 11 and whether kubrick was uh, part of the moon landing hoax mm. you know like you know and all that kind of stuff and but there, there are undeniably tons of references to apollo 11 and all that within that film there's mm. no disputing that and then there's um and room 237 talks about all the stuff with you know the indigenous american indians and all that sort of stuff all that going on in there but the stuff for mine that's particularly interesting even about all those theories is how deliberately kubrick has uh continuity errors in that film hmm. Very, very deliberately, which is very unsettling and off-putting. And there's all these strange things where, like, you know, he painted the typewriter where it starts off really light-coloured and then it becomes grey. And then there's, you know, physical impossibilities within the hotel, like the office of the um, the manager of the hotel couldn't possibly be there, which Room 237 points out. And you're going, wow, that's actually true. That's really true. You know, like, even, you know, I'm not going to go along the full path of their arguments, but um, there are some amazing symbols and, and, and strange, jarring things that he's that he very deliberately does in that film mm. but by the way my favorite conspiracy theory about kubrick was that he did fake the apollo uh landing but he was such an obsessive uh you know he had so much obsessive attention to detail that he made nasa fly him to the moon in order to shoot it um. <laughs> that is that is good <laughs> and, and, and it, it. yeah he started shooting it in 1961 and they went through and shot till 1972. Yeah. <laughs> At the risk of starting to feel like a woman in a Kubrick film, I'm going to gonna muscle my way into the conversation here. Um, and I think that for me, Eyes Wide Shut and The Shining are a real pair as well as, as films about cinema. Like They feel like 
maybe with 2001, the, the most sort of meta-cinematic, um, with Eyes Wide Shut being so concerned with fantasy, but also with gossip. You know, this is a film that was made when Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's marriage was the subject of enormous press speculation. Kubrick flew them to London. They lived with him for months. Um, yeah. I remember we used to go and stalk them because <laughs> we knew where they were living in this building. Like, As you would. Ethan. As you would. Obviously, it was like Tom yeah. and Nicole. And yeah. the film is, there are so many sort of really interesting references to Cruz's sexuality all the way through the film and all these like reflection, reflections and refractions of Nicole Kidman in different characters. And I don't think there would have been as much speculation about that film and the Illuminati if it wasn't for Tom Cruise and Scientology. Can I say that without yes. getting Liz for hyphen at Sue? Oh, no, I'd love to know. I would, no, I would actually, <laughs> love it I would, if we got Sue. <laughs> no, 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 I would love to, um, I would love to know what was going on Scientology wise, because with um, Tom Cruise at that point in his life, because I'm sure that Kubrick would have brought it up. I just I'm can't sure. imagine him yeah. not bringing it up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, and the fact that Nicole sort of drifted away from Scientology and then suddenly Nicole's cut off and all that, you know. Ran I'd, away I'd from Scientology. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'd love to know where that, whereabouts in that arc of their relationship and Scientology, where that was with Kubrick and what he had to say about it. Mm. That would be, I'd love to hear those conversations. It sort of feels... A bit like he's going back to his very first job, which was as a press photographer. He worked for Life magazine and part of his job would have been going and he took a lot of pictures of celebrities. And it does feel like this is a film about the city late at night looking for fascinating images. There's something of that, uh, both obviously of noir, but also of his early career as a press photographer um, and all the depictions we've seen of press photographers in films to it as well, going and capturing these celebrities and their secrets. And with The Shining, it's more, as you say, those those kind of jokes about how shots are made. You know, the exterior of the hotel, I actually went to the hotel this summer where the exteriors were shot, which is called the Timberline Lodge uh, on Mount Hood in Oregon for all you Kubrick obsessives. But the inside <laughs> looks like the great northern in uh twin peaks they're completely divergent from one another so he shot the exteriors in a location that is hundreds of miles from where it's supposed to be and where the interiors were shot and it just feels like this it, he's much less interested in the novel as a novel which he openly said he was like yeah the plot's great but then he abandoned al almost all of it <laughs> um, yeah which stephen king apparently totally cracked the shits about Hated it and then went yeah. off and made his own TV series to resounding oblivion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, really very popular. But all, all of it is about perception, isn't it? It's about where you think an eyeline shot is going. It's about what happens when you try and write a script and tell a story that is engaged with all of this history of Westerns in particular. Like there's so many cod throwaway references to things like the Donner Party and the Indian Burial Ground and he's just seeing what you can do if you build something inside cinema. Mm. I, I, find, I find it really interesting you linked Eyes Wide Shut with The Shining because there's a shot in Eyes Wide Shut that's always jumped out at me which is Cruz walking along the street and he just can't contain himself like the anger and the frustration and he just punches his hand and I've always took that as like with the leather gloves on, I think he has the leather gloves he, on. He, he does, he does, and I've always took that as a link back to The Shining when when Jack's walking down yes. and he does the same thing, and it's like something as simple as walking, and they can't contain themselves—the frustration yeah. and the anger—and it's all bubbling out of them. 
Yeah, I, absolutely. And I remember with The Shining too, I can because um, I can remember when it uh, first came out, and I remember that Nicholson was attacked a lot for his performance, as in people thought he was just over the top. And that it was they just, hadn't seen was, anything yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They hadn't seen Witches of Eastwick, you know. But um, they, they, they thought that, uh, yeah, that, that, that Nicholson was so unrestrained and it was so over the top that it was, I just, you know, it's just weird. I just remember all the attacks on on Kubrick movies rather than all the, the kind of, you know, I mean, he only got one Oscar, I mean, yeah, one Oscar for um, special effects on um, 2001. 2001. Yeah. Which is just incredible, you know. I mean, you just look at some of the things that have won Oscars, so many things you just cannot remember. <laughs> and um, Kubrick got one for – well, Kubrick didn't personally ever get one. Mm. You know. Mm. I mean, what, what he's done for movies, my Lord. But he never made money. Oh, and I he think made... that's po- – well, that's part of what Eyes Wide Shot is about as well, is like the obscenity of wealth in America and the obsession, obsession with money. Um, well, I'd just go, I'd beg to differ a bit on Clockwork Orange, which made a lot of money because he made it incredibly cheaply. He, he decided after 2001 that he had a very low budget and wanted to prove that he could do a low budget movie and shot it for, I think it was like a million pounds or something, or maybe 750,000 pounds. It was something very cheap. He shot it really, um, really cheaply and it made a lot, a lot of money until, of course, he pulled it from uh, UK cinemas, but worldwide yeah. it made it made a bucket load, you know, compared to its cost. Mm. Compared to its cost. But, yeah. we, yeah, we know that Hollywood never rewards X-rated films. Yeah, I remember yeah. I remember the head of Warner's saying, I think at the time, that, you know, he didn't really think Eyes Wide Shut was going to make a ton of money. But he said, you know, if you've got Kubrick, you make a film with Kubrick. You don't, you don't question it. Um, so, mm. like, there was still sort of you know, back in the, just the tail end of the 20th century where there was still some, uh, you know, deference given to artistry over, over commerce. But that, 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 the Kubrick that we talk about and we think about is very, I don't know, there, there were like three phases to his career that I identified and many may disagree. And the Kubrick we know is sort of that third phase that starts around sort of, I think starts around Lolita and, and Dr. Strangelove. And he's got this, the, mm-hmm. the, the first, the first bit, which is sort of, uh, Fear and Desire, his first feature, and The Killing mm. and uh, and Killer's Kiss, which are these really sort of pulpy B noir, mm. yeah, B movie mm. noirs. Which, like, if that if that is all he ever was, like, if if he had never gone beyond that type of filmmaking, then you'd have you know cinephiles like Kubrick would be a a, a password. It would be a shibboleth amongst cinephiles like you know Kubrick yeah. he made these crappy movies that are, but we know that they're really really good and mm. and then he goes from that to making you know this, this brief period making studio films uh, that look like they could be made by you know they're, they're within a recognisable style you know Paths of Glory and Spartacus and he's definitely mm. working to you know what the studio wants even though there's so much of himself in there and then after that it's just there's something happens and it's like he's figured out who he is. And from then on, they're all unmistakably Kubrick. You could, you could blindfold tell who had directed these films. And, and, and just on that, the, uh, I've, I've got that, um, uh, 1100 plus page hardcover tome about the not making of Napoleon, uh, that he put <laughs> decades and decades into trying to make this film and never did. I, I don't, I, I don't think there's ever been a more exhaustive, exhaustively detailed uh, research film that, that never actually got made or, or even had been made because 
uh, he had been trained since the 60s and, and never got it made. And, and this tome has the script in it. And you can see it was written in, I think, the late 60s. And you can just, you can feel Kubrick's direction in all these sort of non-stylized pieces of dialogue. These, re- you know, a sim- simple narration and then a knife chopping carrots. And, you know, just these... There's something unmistakable about that sort of pared back Kubrick style that that sort of became his hallmark sort of in, I guess, the mid to late 60s. I mean, maybe we should say it was amazing that someone who spent literally a year looking for the field for the opening shot of Barry Lyndon managed to make any films at all. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I know. But I I can't, I tend to agree with you on that. where you put that mark down, I think Dr. Strangelove was the first one where he was kind of free, where he was totally allowed to do whatever he wanted, you know. And and, and I think that there's that amazing thing that Kubrick manages to do, like the more you sort of look into the making of the movies, is is that while he's so meticulous, he's still very open to suggestion, which, you know, you, you, you sort of, you feel like it would be very easy to believe that he's storyboarded everything down to the finest detail, which is just not the case at all, you know. I mean, a mm. lot of it's being made as he's doing Doing it, which is is so incredible. I mean, the preparation, you know, untold preparation and changing, but changing his mind regularly throughout the making of the movie, asking for suggestions. You know, like I mean, there's a great bit on the making of Full Metal Jacket where he asks the cast into the trailer and says, you know, what, any ideas for what we should do for the ending? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and they're all like. You're asking us? You know, <laughs> after that, just spent, you know, however many months going through living hell and he's asked them, how do you think we should end it, boys? You know, It's, it's the mean, filmmaking equivalent of does anyone here know how to fly a plane? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> does anyone know how to do an emergency tracheotomy? You know, like this. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, that thing. Um, sorry, what Sophie was saying about like him taking a year to find one location is is oh, so so true because like according to 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 his widow uh, Christine, he he was really upset that he didn't make more films. Like he wanted to be really prolific, but that wow. desire was completely at odds with his working method. He just couldn't couldn't rush a project. Yeah, it was interesting too. The other one that, um, along with Napoleon, is the AI, which he handed over to Spielberg, which I just do not understand. It's mm. just. I completely don't get that. Like, I'm, I, I, I haven't watched it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not a... Too heartbreaking. I'm, I, just absolutely too heartbreaking. I just go, I just... Look, I thought Jewel and Jaws were good movies, but most of Spielberg, no, thank you. But that's just me. Like, I, it's just a sort of a... I'm not a massive fan. You know, I think that Jewel was a really great film and Jaws was a good film. But, like, to hand a Kubrick to... Spielberg, I just think, is like handing whiskey to a 15-year-old. It's just... (laughs) (laughs) With predictable results. Yeah, I just... I I haven't watched it. And, I mean, I look, I will watch it one day, but I just... I don't know. It's it's very... uh, That's troubling to me. Mm, But but I think one of the... Like, um, speaking of when Kubrick became Kubrick, uh, one of the things that I would... You know, because obviously with Spartacus, he didn't start off as the director on that movie. He came in a couple of weeks mm. into it, and then you know, and then and he sort of vowed that that would be the last time that he wouldn't have final cut on a movie. 
and Warner Brothers basically took him under their wing and said, yeah, you can do whatever you want. One of the great relationships, you know, like, I mean, that's the, what every director wants to hear, of course, and, and, and many have abused that, you know, while I don't think Kubrick actually ever did. But the thing that I would say about Kubrick when I think of Kubrick is, uh, particularly in that sort of from Dr. Strangelove onwards, is pretty much any frame of any of those films, you could it could be a poster or it could be a you know like a you could hang it in an art gallery you know yeah. like every every single frame that that I find just amazing. Mm. And people have done that. Lee, did I did I see on your Kubrick pile the two thousand and one shot by shots book? Yes, yes, my precious. <laughs> um. <laughs> you cannot carry that to Mount Doom. That thing weighs a ton. Yes, yes. No, uh, that's uh, yeah. It is uh, two thousand one. Is quite a a special one for me. This is a. I don't know how many times I've seen it. It's got to be in double figures. And but every time I've seen it, it's been on the big screen. Like I've got it on Blu-ray, and I can't bring myself to watch it small. I know it backwards and forwards, but it always awes me. And so much of that. That awe, sorry, just, you know, jumping into 2001 now, but I think so, no, much, so much of that awe comes from how mundane life in space seems. And he makes the process of eating, of making a phone call, the, the, just the physicality of the space station. It's, it's hyper-stylized, but it, it also feels very tactile and relatable. And so when you get to that third act and the film lurches into the unknown, uh, beyond the infinite, it's, it's all the more extraordinary. And... It's, it's one of the most terrifying films I ever watched. Like, more than The Shining, this one scares me because it's of how existentialist it is. It's the only time in cinema where I feel like I'm, I'm looking at a physical representation of something that I cannot possibly understand every single time. And I keep starting to try to analyse the film and then I resist because it's, it's so profound that any, any attempt to ground it in some sort of tangible language would strip it of its magic and it's one of the few pieces of magic left i think for me anyway it's um it's it's like a religious experience yeah i don't i don't disagree with that it's sort of meta cinema there's something really uber about uh, 2001 you know that mm. I, I agree I, I i mean just even when you think of that um on the on the when they i think when they're traveling to the moon and the little foot pad the walking up the aisle of the um whatever the you know the sort of space shuttle thing that they're on with the little the little foot pads so that the um the, yeah, the yeah. air steward or whatever that, uh, can walk along the thing you go so each footstep is really a big deal you know like and um any movement is a big deal and that continual movement in that movie and the movement of his camera, you know, like it's his camera movement is, is just, I mean, you can just talk about that for three hours. You go like the, you know, the steady cam shots in, in full metal jacket, sorry to jump around a bit, but you go that steady cam shot where you are a member of that, that troop and the steady cam sort of moves forward of three people, then three people move forward of the camera, then the camera moves forward and then people move forward. You know what I mean? And you're part of that troop. That was sort of the first time I really, experienced Steadicam as a, a really powerful put-you-there storytelling device? I think one of just listening to the description of all these moments and what they recall for me, you know, Kubrick has just saturated our imaginary of cinema. Like, for younger viewers, is it hard to come to his films now because they're going to know so much about them, have seen so many moments that pastiche or homage them like in everything from ads music videos other you know filmmakers who pay tribute to him he feels like he's almost sunk into the language of cinema in some way 
Does that make sense? Yeah, like, can, can anyone listen to the Blue Danube and, like, hear it like it's for the first time kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And and even, you know, with Eyes Wide Shut, he's thinking about that himself and going back to, like, the novelist who Max Offel's adapted and paying his own homage. But there's this way in which he was trying to build a language of cinema moving from genre to genre. Not many people make a natural light costume drama and a science fiction film several war films which feels like a you know a genre that was important all through his career as someone who who grew up during world war ii and you know ends with a psychological romantic drama that he's he's trying to build this language of cinema that that so cinema becomes kubrick Mm, yeah um it's i don't know what to say to that but yes that, that's one of the things where you go about Kubrick that you find, I find so sort of amazing is that thing of going whatever genre he put his hand to, he just sort of lauded it. You know, like he just yeah. he just sort of nailed every sort of one of them that he touched, you know, and you just go. And it's very easy to forget the humour in Kubrick films because, mm. you know, especially when cinema files are talking about Kubrick, it's like, oh, Kubrick, Kubrick, Kubrick. And you sort of you forget that there's so much humour, while much of it's very black, but there's tons of humour mm. in so many of his films. Really um, h- hilarious and inappropriate stuff, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's a great quote he said during the making of uh, Doctor Strangelove where he said, confront a man in his office with a nuclear alarm and you have a documentary. If the news reaches him in his living room, you have a drama. If it catches him in the lavatory, the result is a comedy. And of course, General Buck hears the news about the nuclear alarm while he's in the bathroom. And I think, yeah, he had specific ideas about genre and, and you know, what the rules of, of each one were, which is why he was able to shift between each one so effortlessly. But, yeah, comedy, absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, all, I, I'm shocked even knowing so many of these films back to front, re-watching them. I'm amazed at how incredibly funny they were, and especially the biggest surprise, because I hadn't seen it since its release, was Eyes Wide Shut. And I did not remember that as a comedy because I was at film school and took everything far too seriously. (laughs) And me me and my film school buddies left a lecture halfway through. We had T-shirts printed up. I'm not kidding. We called them Eyes Wide Shirts. And we went to the 10 (laughs) a.m. screening at Pacific Fair on the Gold Coast of Eyes Wide Shut. I know Pacific Fair. I've been to Pacific Fair. <laughs> yeah, what a, what a place to watch the last ever Kubrick film. Yeah, um, and, I know. And now I'm watching it as, you know, an adult, and it's just this completely... I mean, it's so ridiculous that this oh. fantasy he's on, isn't this, it isn't this super serious sexual adventure. It's like, it's a dream he's having. It's and ridiculous. He's, and, and, he's yeah. so, and he's so boring and conservative that even the orgy he imagines is fairly <laughs> standard. Like, it's not particularly shocking. Yeah, and the father of the girl um, at the at the costume shop. Mm. The fa- I mean, the father. So funny. Oh, Millich. That's yeah. it. Oh God, what a great character, you know. And that whole relationship, like, it's just oh, mm. that you could just you can you know you could make a film just just about that shop. Yeah, you know, the rainbow, the yeah. rainbow costume shop. You know, it's and and, well, and the shop underneath is under the rainbow. Kubrick oh, yeah. kind of did make a film about that costume shop called Lolita, and one of the jokes oh. in my chart is that Tom Cruise's character is kind of touring Kubrick's filmography, which is also his subconscious, and we're all in on the joke, and he's not. <laughs> like, he shows up, and there's this seductive teenage girl, and everyone in the audience is going, yep. Lolita! <laughs> and he's like, what? I'm from 19th century Vienna. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> it feels very consciously like this late late work where he sort of tours around these intense relationships between men and how they manipulate each other. He has a scene in the very first scene where, where we meet the couple is in the bathroom. I don't know what it is about Kubrick and bathrooms that kind of is some sort of reflection or recapitulation of the relationship in The Shining. And you just know nothing good is going to come of it. Then this, this Lolita reference. And I think even the way that, you know, there's a lot of Clockwork Orange in Eyes Wide Shut as well. This idea of the city sort of moving into chaos and what levels of violence and doing thy own will are, are acceptable. It's None of his other films had had an orgy in them before. Oh, sort of a, well, no, not an orgy, but you would say, well, I mean, a gang rape, I guess, in Clockwork Orange. That's, yeah, I don't call that an orgy. No, no, I wouldn't call that an orgy right. either. But, but, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Gang rape and very sort of stylized, you know, and he was very conscious, apparently very, you know, like it seems to be true, the very conscious of, you know, violence in his movies after Clockwork Orange because mm. he was, you know, so much sort of uh, stuff went down about that movie and he thought that he'd overdone the violence in that movie that he was um, very aware very aware of violence and the use of it in any sort of um, film that followed. But I just want to speak about that moment, which I still sort of shudder, you know, every time I see it, in Eyes Wide Shut, that great mansion scene when they're all wearing masks and they ask him to come forward, you know, and he's kind of busted, is still... It's that still sends shivers down my spine. I just mm. go, it's still frightening because those masks. I can't think of any other film where everybody in the in the the whole kind of act is wearing a mask. I can't mm. think of another film where that's the case. And uh, you know, it, it's sort of a cinematic no-no in a lot of ways to do it. You know, but um, you know, it still works. You just, I mean, it, every time I see that scene, I go, oh, how would you feel? Fuck, get the fuck out! Get the fuck out! <laughs> I mean, it partially works because the rest of their bodies aren't really wearing anything. So, you know, yeah, but the, no, but when when there's the the big circle meeting where they're all in black, you know, in the black robes, and there's the guy in the middle of the right. red, yeah, that yeah. that one, not, not in the nude ones. I mean, the 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 meeting of the powerful or the what we think of the right. rich and powerful of New York City or the world. You know, at their sort of secret castle. You know, all of the secrets it's that they hold. It switches into into horror film. You know, Absolutely. you do you associate masks and that kind of ritual. So, you know, Wagner starts playing in your head, and and I love yeah. that when when he sets off on this this journey, uh, he he leaves because a patient of his is deceased. He says, "I have to go. I have to show my face, like mm. as in make an appearance." But the wording is so specific that that yeah, that that was the first clue I had on this on this rewatch that, oh, God, it's all in his head. It's all a dream. He has to show his face. He sort of, he's about to create this fantasy for himself. And New York is very, uh, you know, like if you watch it, it's quite deliberately fake. Mm. Like New York really mm -hmm. looks like a movie version of New York. It doesn't really look like New York. Funny that, given that it was shot in Hertfordshire. <laughs> yes, indeed. He will never leave England. The okay. least New York place on earth, apart from, like, <laughs> The Gobi Desert. Um, <laughs> or Hull, yeah. Or Hull. <laughs> and it, it's, it's crazy that someone who grew up in New York, whose um, early career was, you know, part of this great rush of city photography and creating the post-war city, should be recreating it on a soundstage in, uh, in, in England. There's that, again, that kind of sucking the world into, into cinema 
aspect as well but a lot of his films have that feeling you know with Barry Lyndon he goes to one extreme of the authentic with Lolita there's kind of another this kind of he grounds it in this realist drama these signifiers of you know like downbeat almost b-movie but then on top of it is this incredibly hyper stylized storyline and then a full metal jacket creating that incredibly realist in the middle of it has to be more over the top than all of the films that's gone before it war experience and then at the very end he goes right we're gonna you know it's meant to be in 19th century vienna anyway so we're gonna shoot this on a soundstage and the whole film is going to be a masked ball a costume party that the audience are at and that i think that gives it some of its frisson Mm. Mm. <laughs> I don't really know how to say that word. <laughs> I love that word. No, I love that word because that is a great segue into the, how Kubrick uses his music, I would argue. Mm. Like yeah. he, the, uh, the way that he brought music into where where often the, the music or the piece of music that he's chosen, there is a definite friction with what the, what the visual is. You know, like the fact that he let Malcolm McDowell use Singing in the Rain while he stomps somebody as a, you know, a droog, as, he, as, he, as a sort of a gang member gets to um, kick the shit out of someone while doing Singing in the Rain, mm. that he went with that. Even though I, th- I believe um, Malcolm McDowell came up with that, just started uh, with singing in the rain, and that Kubrick went with it. I could be wrong. No, no, but, it was true. Um, it was the, he said it was the only song he knew the lyrics to. All right, there you go. That's good. <laughs> well, he didn't go with "Happy Birthday," which is odd. Um, but um, but it still that costs a lot of money. It does cost but, a lot of. But money. But he used That's it in it. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then of course he used um, you know at the end of Full Metal Jacket singing the Mickey Mouse theme song you know just that's just fantastic and obviously using Strauss's waltz in um, 2001 you know mm. when the bone goes up and becomes the spaceship and yeah his use of music I, I think um that's one of the things where you'd say I think it's him that changed cinema with his use of music I think he mm. he was the first to really do that 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 friction between the image and the the music like it wasn't just to um it wasn't music wasn't used to support the um the image it was used to fight the image and I think he was, you know, he would he would very happily do that. Often, often, of course, the music will help, but but he would often let them fight, let let the music and the pictures fight it out, you know. And particularly fighting it out with this music that's supposed to be sacred cows. Going back to Lee's phrase earlier, you know, throwing Strauss into space. Mm. That was a totally rad thing to do. So it's not just like oh, it's fighting it out with the quality of the music. It's the whole history of the music and everything we associate with it. And I think that's partially what gives grist to those conspiracy theorists who are like everything in Kubrick's films is to do with the Holocaust. It's like how he uses European culture and sets it up against these images of violence. Mm. Um, was clearly, you know, it was something that marked him really deeply as a Jewish kid growing up during the Second World War. And I think not in a conspiracy theory way, like, it's part of what he's always thinking about. Mm. Yeah, part um, of his DNA. In, in his films, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And apparently he was, sorry, um, um, Sophie, I'm not sure if, do you know about the, he was working on a film called something like The Aryan Papers? I think. Yeah, it was... uh, not The Aryan Papers. The, there was an exhibition about it in London right. um, by the twins Jane and Louise Wilson, like how creepy, uh, right. an exhibition by how... twin it's... artists. Yeah, yeah, no, it was The Aryan Papers. Um, yeah that was one of his projects that he didn't yeah. uh, complete, you know, that according to his wife, it took a really heavy toll on him and she was very relieved that he sort of put it aside. You know, yeah, he gave it, he gave it to Spielberg to make, you know, Schindler's List. No, I'm kidding. 
Yeah. No, well, he, he mentioned Schindler's List, actually, uh, because somebody said, well, why, why are you making a Holocaust film? Spielberg made Schindler's List. And he said, no, no, Schindler's List is about 600 people who lived. I need to make a film about 6 million people who died. Yeah. yeah. When, if either of you come to London, the uh, Aryan Papers have gone back to the Stanley Kubrick archive uh, uh-huh. at the University of the Arts London, uh, where I used to, t- to teach, and also material from this exhibition by these twin artists, mm-hmm. um, oh. which was part of the Kubrick season the, at the at the BFI about six years ago. So I think people are going to keep going back. And, that, you know, that, that Napoleon and the Aryan Papers were not his only uncomplete film so it seems like we will keep getting fragments or um insights into into what he could have achieved because so many people have learned so much from his films like they go back to them and then they make new projects from them and he was so obsessive himself like the archive is enormous imagine it just made me think just while you were talking to imagine if we had stanley kubrick my scientology movie rather than louis <laughs> thoreau's one <laughs> <laughs> That that would go over well, yeah. <laughs> Sydney Pollack being super extra, yeah. stern and creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny little thing I did pick up. Speaking of um, Sydney Pollack, in that scene in the um, in the, on the billiard table with um, Tom Cruise, which apparently had to do just over and over and over again, like for just forever. Mm. Is this, I think the thing that Kubrick was trying to get him to do was to hit the the um, billiard ball on the table a couple of times, just like the tap when they're at the masked bad guy's castle. That's my theory, is that he just mm. wanted him to tap that ball, which is the exact same sound that happens, you know, which kind of links that room or that house and that character to all of the masked people mm. at the right. And I think what he was going for, as subtle as it is. He, lo- he loves drawing attention to things. Like he, he loves those those connecting moments, those sort of mu- mundane moments that always mean something. And right from those little actions, like on the pool table, or like I, I, I hinted at before, the, um, the the chopping of carrots in the Napoleon script, which is which give, gets a lot of stage direction. This simple chopping of carrots and, and the music. It's there's something very Brechtian about the fact that in The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut and Lolita, the music is there not to put you in a mood and be invisible. It's there to remind you that you're listening to music and watching a film. It draws attention to itself. And and I think he likes people being in on the joke that, yes, you are watching a movie. Oh, I very much agree with that. And how much he uses, like when somebody's telling a story, so often in his films, there'll be curtains. There'll be like a sort mm. of a little, almost a little mm. stage within the screen, you know, like with little curtains. Like oh, when yeah. Nicole Kidman's telling her story to Tom Cruise about the sailor and all that, there's little cur- little curtains behind her as if almost like she's on a little a little stage telling him, you know. And there's, yeah, yeah. that happens again and again throughout um, Kubrick films. They're like little mini stages that, that, the, that people are sort of performing on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just con- I'm contemplating that. It feels like a good place to end. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. I mean, we could just keep, keep going for days. Like, I, I feel like an hour per film isn't quite enough to... Oh, absolutely. I, know. I think we should do 43 takes just about that. <laughs> Did know about um about Kubrick's? If we just you know we just call it Kubrick's gaze, and then and then we go for three hours, you know, like no problem, just no problem. Yeah. Hey, how are you spelling gaze? Because I'm I'm thinking back to some scenes from Spartacus. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. With the cut scene, did you say it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the very famously cut scene from Spartacus. I know Oysters the, and the, snails. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's right. I was going to say prawns, but no, of course. Well, what else can we say? Reese? thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and great, great to chat to both you and Sophie. I'm just about to head off to um, Old Melbourne Jail to watch Tex Perkins sing songs by Johnny Cash. Oh, perfect. That should be pretty good. Yeah. Don't forget <laughs> your mask. I won't forget my mask. And Fidelio. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Excellent. And we'll see the rest of you next month. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day.